Good morning. Today we're going to be reading from James 5.16 and 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. So first from James 5. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is God's word for us today. This fall, we've been in a series that we have entitled Abide. We are looking at the practices of grace. The reason we're calling it the practices of grace is simply because we believe that Christianity teaches us that Christianity takes practice. That is difficult. That, of course, there's a simplicity to Jesus. There's a simplicity to salvation. The gospel can be understood by anyone. We are in need of saving. Jesus is the Savior. There is a simplicity to the message of the gospel. But bringing that into the complexity of the human heart is really, really hard. It takes a lot of time. It takes God himself through his Holy Spirit working in us and changing us and transforming us. It takes community, it takes friendship, it takes vulnerability, it takes practice. And when we assume it doesn't, we often get hurt. But when we rally around this theme that Jesus is worth practicing for, that we're after him, that the practices that we've been outlining throughout this fall series, they really aren't the end of what we're after. They're just the means. And what we're after is more of Christ. We want to be with him. We want to know him. We want to be in relationship and proximity to the God of the universe, a good God who's given his life for us. I want to know him. And these are practices that people have understood and practiced traditionally, uh, brought down to us through the scriptures and through just wisdom, learning how to practice becoming people of love who are after Jesus's way in the world. And so today we're going to jump into a unique practice, one of the most significant and transformative practices in the Christian church, a form of praying and conversation with God and one another that is often referred to as a confession of sin. Confession is where we resist the temptation to avoid reality. Ready? About the world that we live in, yes, but more importantly, actually about ourselves. Healing, healing change always begins in the places where we are the most broken. And the practice of confession brings us there. So the three things we'll look at today from those two texts, we're going to look at distortion or deformation, number one. Number two, we're going to look at the theme of freedom. And we're going to see that when this distortion is voiced, as we find freedom and forgiveness, It breeds, number three, an incredible type of fellowship with other people. So distortion, freedom, and fellowship today. So under part one, let's reread from 1 John, those two verses, verses 8 and 9. This is in chapter 1. There John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We are living within a moment where a self-help, self-maximized, self-assured 
therapeutic approach to life is the best solution our society can offer for the pain, for the confusion, for the anxiety that we experience in a post-truth world. The Bible is not against self or maybe even self-help or understanding who you are or the idea of confidence, but this theme of a therapeutic approach to life is different than, I think, a biblical approach to life. A therapeutic approach to life is looking for an easy solution to minimize pain and maximize self. And therapy, just to be clear, is not something that that the Bible is in any way against. In so many ways, my job is to offer counsel and forms of therapy. I have been the recipient of therapy. Therapy can be very good. We are holistic human beings in need of comprehensive help, mind, body, soul. But what we're talking about is a self-help, self-maximized, therapeutic approach to life. We've been given a lot of options in order to maximize self and minimize pain. But this entire self-help industry, and really I think most of Western society, is going to do everything it can to avoid saying the issue is actually you. It's inside of you. You were the problem. The Bible is also not going to be naive and boil all of our social problems down to a simplistic answer. Society is complex. The human heart is complex. Our problems are complex. But a self-help therapeutic approach to life is going to avoid saying that you are part of the problem. It's going to say that the problems are external and that the solution has to be brought in. What Christianity is going to have the courage to say is that the issue is actually inside of us. And we need an external solution to what's going on inside of the human life and the human heart. Modern society doesn't have the courage to tell you that the deeper problem of the human life is inside of us. Part of the fabric of who we now are, this shared trait passed from generation to generation, one that can't be fixed through the promises of progress or technology or self-help. And the Bible calls this reality sin. Author and scholar Simeon Zoll, he says, in this condition, the sin condition, is not just an idea. It's a reality. It's a fact on the ground and always has been. It's just that we late modern people have forgotten how to name it. Sin hasn't disappeared. We've just lost the equipment to detect it. The MRI machine may be broken, but the patient still has cancer. See, most theologians prefer to reference sin as a condition rather than simply a thing we do or an experience that we have. We can't minimize it. We are currently trapped within an unavoidable condition where distortion has become normative, where good plans so often get corrupted. Whereas Zoll writes, in so many things that happen, there is this slight tilt toward the perverse and the cruel. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 3, verses 22 through 24, he writes, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He says there's no distinction. 
Everybody has sinned, every single one of us. It's part of the fabric, the spiritual DNA that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And can I also add this, that I'm glad that that truth is there, that we have fallen short of God's glory, which means we can't reach it on our own. If God could be reached on its own, on our own moral effort, then this God probably is not worth going after. He's just a little bit better than I am. In fact, I can reach him. But it's not what Christianity says. It says that God is different, that he's distinct, he's holy, he's righteous, that we have fallen short of the standard, fallen short of the glory of this God, and we can only be justified by his grace as a gift. Sin is like gravity, a condition, only it causes enormous suffering. You see, and to confess our sin is to agree with God that our sin is something that needs to be forgiven. It's not just an uncomfortable experience that needs to be avoided. You may know that sin enters into the human story, the scene in Genesis chapter 3, where there's this beautiful prehistory to sin's arrival. The prehistory to the arrival of sin was marked by incredible beauty and flourishing. God had created all things good and perfect. God creates day after day. And you know what he says after each day? He says it's good. Every day good. Everything he makes beautiful, perfect, in its proper place. More importantly, in its proper relationship with God at the center, God as the fuel, God as the glory, and everything else contingent upon him. When we're introduced to the first human beings, Adam and Eve, they are described as naked and unashamed, which is a statement about the moral goodness of God's good world. God had given Adam and Eve incredible position and power within his created world to govern and to rule. They were at the center of paradise with God as their anchor and the world as their oyster with nothing but shalom as the condition of their day. But then enters mistrust. And sin. Adam and Eve were tempted to trust more in themselves than in God. And this trust was fused with the false belief that God was somehow insecure, that he was fearful, that he was holding out on them, that God couldn't and shouldn't be trusted. And so Adam and Eve took the fruit, they ate it, and the very brief description we're given is that their eyes were opened to a world of shame and grief, and toil, and frustration, and broken relationships, and cancer, and disease, and death, and ultimately separation from God. See, the result of sin entering into our world is distortion and deformation. We were designed to be formed by the God who made us. But when we mistrusted him, when we took and ate, when sin had its effect, when it erupted into a beautiful world, the result is distortion in the human heart. John Tyson writes, combined with a sinful and selfish nature, our formation has been around pursuing project self, with a sinful system pushing us into its mold. What we think, what we want, what we fear, and what we pursue are patterned after the ideas, images, imagination, and practices of the world. We haven't just been formed by the world, we have been deformed.
Listen, but healing always begins in the places we are broken. Why? Because if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The alternative to owning our sin through confession, this beautiful but hard practice, the alternative to owning our sin through honesty is denying our sin through hiding and avoidance. And hiding and denying always breed distortion. A life apart from this God of love, but coming clean, coming into the light of God's love as a sinner in need of saving always produces what Jesus calls life to the full. Let's shift to point number two. Point one, distortion. And number two, this theme of freedom. Almost everyone agrees that there is a crack through the moral framework of the human community, but not everyone agrees on the cause or the solution. A G.K. Chesterton is famed for answering the question of what's wrong with the world with the response, I am. I am. What's going on in our world? Why is it so broken? Why are there so many systems that don't function properly? His answer, it's about me. I am the problem. Tyler Statton says something very similar in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. He writes, the world doesn't get sorted out unless I do. Now listen, Christians throughout the centuries have articulated a threefold framework to explain the dynamics of life in a broken world. Teachers and writers have called this the three enemies of the soul. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The three enemies of the soul. Now, of course, in the modern world, and maybe this is you, we scorn this line of reasoning as antiquated, as naive. Who believes in the devil? Who believes that the world is bent in a certain way? But John Mark Comer, he adds, he says, whether consciously or subconsciously, we're quick to dismiss those categories altogether. But then we wonder why we feel an incessant tug of war in our chests that sabotages our peace. And we're mystified by the chaos in our news feeds. Why is the world such a mess? And why am I? I want to look at that threefold framework for just a moment. Let's look at it slightly out of order. The devil, the world, and then the flesh. All right, the devil is described in, in the book of John as the father of lies. This is his descriptor. Want to know something about the devil? He is the father of lies. He delights in laying our world and heart with deceptive ideas. This is what he's going to say to your heart. He'll say something like, hiding, deflection, and avoidance of what's going on in your life, in your heart, or the, are the best options. No one will love you if you tell the truth, if you let them in, right? if you let them see who you really are. Look, Elsa in Frozen says so herself. I'll try not to sing it. She says, don't let them in. Don't let them see be the good girl you always have to be. Listen, conceal, don't feel. Don't let them know 
What does she end up? Where does she end up? She ends up in an ice castle by herself. But even in that storyline, in that movie, we see that the human impulse is to not let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal it. Don't feel it. Don't let anybody know. The devil wants to plant that lie in your life that if you were seen, then you wouldn't be loved. Another enemy of the soul, the world. The Bible describes this as an incredibly beautiful thing that God has created that is now broken, just like you're broken, and our hearts are off. The world itself is broken. And the world is a place where our disordered desires are normalized in systems and societies that are often designed to create and shape and form us into anything other than the image of Jesus. And then the flesh. It's the reality that our hearts are disordered by sin. And we believe the lies that God can't and won't ever make us happy. And listen, isn't that the question we're really wondering? Isn't that the question that we are desperate for an answer to? What's going to make me happy or whole or fulfilled in the deepest part of my soul? And the answer to that, according to Christianity, is God himself. What if God offered you something other than himself as the thing that would make you happy? What he's saying is, I can't make you happy. I've got to provide something else for you. But the answer of Christianity is that God makes himself available to us, namely through the person of Jesus and the Spirit of God infusing our world right here and right now to make you happy, what the Bible calls blessed, whole, and fulfilled in the deepest part of your soul. The Bible does not say that God will make your life easy. What he does say is that I will be with you no matter what life gives you. But with so much separating us from God, with so many ingrained habits of avoidance of the truth, with so many cultural streams enforcing a worldview that puts you and your preferences at the center, with years and years of hiding as normal, with habits that are hidden, with distortion in my life, if I open myself to the possibility of God, if I let him in as I open my heart, what's he going to see? And what's he going to do? And the answer of Christianity is that he's going to see your sin, he's going to see the shame, and he's going to move closer out of love, not further out of disgust. When we open our hearts to God, when we turn to him with the spirit of brokenness, when we confess our sin plainly and openly, without caveat, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from everything that's not right. But John Tyson is right when he said, God will not transform the person that you are pretending to be. Hmm? God will not transform the person that you are pretending to be. He will always call you to something better and more honest out of hiding. God loves to call humans out of hiding. You know that when sin entered into the world and mistrust became part of the narrative, when we chose to eat of the fruit and then our eyes were opened, you know that God comes walking into the garden, that he comes to pull Adam and Eve out of their hiding. He asks a simple question, where are you? 
He calls their name. He comes looking for them. He knows that everything that he made that was beautiful and good has been disrupted, that shalom has been broken. And he comes walking into the cool of his own garden. And he calls their name. Where are you? Even in that moment, you see the seeds being planted, that it's in the heart of God to love us and to bring us out of hiding so that we can stop pretending, so that we can stop avoiding. And the answer of Christianity or the evidence of Christianity is that God will never force your hand, but he will instead warm your heart. Come out. Hear me call your name. I see you. I'd like to cover that shame. How does he do that? He does it through layers and layers of unexpected kindness and love that are put on fullest display in the nakedness and shame and rejection experienced by Jesus on the cross for you. See, the substitutionary claims of Christianity are what drive honesty and invite confession. Christ died for you. In your place, for your sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become, we might practice, we might become the righteousness of God. Everything our sin deserves was placed upon Jesus Christ. Condemnation, separation from the Father, and death. But in his resurrection... The truth is that everything Jesus deserves is transferred to us. See, he's calling our names. This is the heart of Christianity. Layers and layers of unexpected kindness. I will not condemn you. You know why? Because I have already been condemned in your place. I have seen you. I know that there is sin. I know that there is distortion. I know that there are layers and layers of hiding and avoidance. I came for that. See, when Jesus is on the cross dying for you and for me, what he's doing is he's calling your name. Let me say this. This practice of confession. Let's be clear in saying that your confession won't save you. It won't. See, the quality of your confession won't save you. The gospel says that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and your confession is but the effort to take hold of the saving work of Jesus. I'm a sinner. I need help. I'm separated from this God of love. God, heal me and forgive me. Only if someone has absorbed the penalty of your misplaced desires and loves, only then can you admit the truth about yourself without fear. And listen, this is freedom. Tyler Statton says, to confess is to say, I want to name my symptoms completely and comprehensively because I want healing completely and comprehensively. Christians, I think, are notorious for a generalized confession. But so often the gospel feels foreign. It feels far. I don't want to be healed in part. I want to be healed in full. 
And I don't want to be free in part. I want to experience freedom in full. See, to confess is to say, I want to name my symptoms completely and comprehensively because I want to be healed. I want to be healed in full. And the heart of Jesus for you, Hebrews 4, 15, we read, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Incredible. See, we have a Savior whose response to our sin is empathy. The writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize. We have a Savior whose response to our sin is empathy. He understands. He's walked in our shoes. He's been tempted in every way. His heart for sinners and sufferers is to move closer, to call their name, to bring them in. He doesn't want them further away. He wants to embrace, which means, listen, that our sin can actually bring us closer to Christ if we allow it. It can draw out his heart towards us if we're open to it. And this is a complete reversal of the devil's plan to condemn you. He wants to say, you're not worth it. Your life is a sham. You're a fake. You'd be better off to hide and pretend. Jesus says, my heart is for you. I see you. There is no condemnation here. I am able to empathize. I run towards the sinner because I'm a God of restoration and forgiveness. When we turn to God with empty hands and an honest heart, He will forgive your sin and set you free. See, distortion, the reality of brokenness in the human heart, but freedom, the freedom of confession, the freedom of honesty, the freedom of no more hiding. Our sin, ironically, being a conduit into the love of God. And then thirdly, fellowship. Not only can confession be a conduit into the loving mercy of God, it can actually be a conduit into the deepest sort of friendship. Look at James 5.16. In that verse, James writes, Therefore confess your sins to each other. All right? To each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. All right. This may seem scary. You say to yourself, I can confess my sin to God, but to another human in the same room at the same time to honestly expose myself to somebody else, what are they going to say? God has forgiven me, but other people might not. Well, Honestly, there is a bit of truth to that. We're not exactly sure how somebody may respond. But part of what Christianity does is it frees you not to care. That you're no longer a slave to the opinions, to the response, to the reciprocation of somebody else. That you are now set free. In fact, if you look at the context of John, James 5.16, that verse is given where James is instructing people who are physically ill to go to the elders and to pray and ask them to pray for them so that their physical bodies might be healed. But you know what James is saying when he says, confess your sins to each other? I think what he's saying is that actually the sick person has a bigger and deeper issue at hand, and it's the state of your heart. 
Your body may be sick, but your heart is sick. And he says, as you're healing your body, let's ensure that your heart is in a good place. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. He says, the human being is so complex, body, mind, soul, that often when our bodies are not well, could it maybe be that there's something not right with our hearts? And as we come to Jesus and to the presence of his people and we confess that poison, that cancer, and we, uh, we erase it from our body through the forgiveness offered through Jesus, that maybe there's a restoration of body that takes place. Tyler Statton says, the desperate need of our time is not for successful Christians, popular Christians, or winsome Christians. It's for deep Christians. And the only way to become a deep Christian is through the inner excavation called confession. The pathway of spiritual maturity is a descent, not an ascent. And a maturing community is a confessing community. Not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. I recently heard a Christian thought leader comment on the comparison between the church and an AA meeting. People have been part of both often lament that the church isn't more like AA. And this person said that the church, it actually could be. The church could become like the dynamic of an AA meeting, but only if Christians become more like alcoholics. And his point was that Christians have to become desperate and in need of help. No more hiding, honest confessions of who we really are offered in the gracious light of Jesus Christ, who gave up his life to provide the solution for sin and death. When that happens, then you'll find deep community, real community and depth of fellowship. I want to close by reading this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's from his famous book, Life Together. He says this. He says, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. See what he's saying? Sin demands to have you by yourself. It withdraws you from other people. He goes on, the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light, he says. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. Incredibly beautiful. Unconfessed sin isolates and it intimidates. But when we step out of the darkness and into the light, listen, it may bruise our pride in the moment, but lowered defenses and ruined pride is what God can use to set your heart on fire. You know that God is bringing 
a movement of renewal to his church when we begin to confess our sin to one another. The tremendous fear of being seen and condemned by other people is slowly but surely erased by the loving acceptance of a gospel of no more shame. That's the good news. No more condemnation. I've seen you. I love you. I've called your name. I've come looking for you. You saw it in the garden and you see it in Jesus Christ. See, what you will find in the place of fear and hiding is love and forgiveness from God and his people. No one who has seen Christ condemned for their own sin will condemn you for yours. The church is intended to be a company of sinners, a camaraderie of grace addicts, people who have been rescued from their own internal darkness by the loving light of Jesus. Man, so let this company of sinners come to their Savior. Let them throw off the masks of hiding and choose transparency because of grace and find Him and other people ready and able to forgive. Let's pray together. Jesus, you tell us if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and none of us want to be self-deceived. We deceive ourselves if we claim to be without sin. And the truth is not in us, man. We want the truth, even if it's a hard truth. I'm broken. I'm selfish. The number one kingdom I'm building is my own kingdom. Lord, I'm bent on whatever I want, not what you want or really what anybody else wants. But hiding is easier than transparency. It is a whole lot more comfortable to stay in the shadows, to not let people see who we really are. But in the shadows, we die. We atrophy. Our, Our souls grow weak. Our confidence in you is muted. Our connection to other people grows really thin. But there is this other glorious truth in Christianity that says despite the fact that we're hiders, that we're sinners, that we're broken. The other side is if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful to us. He is just and he will forgive us our sins. Who can forgive sin but the one who has been sinned against? And this means that Jesus is saying he's God. That he has come for sinners to save them. And we thank you for the unexpected kindness that God offers us. That when we could be eliminated, when we could be condemned, he offers grace. And actually, he offers himself. Lord Jesus, the the freedom that comes from knowing that that you have been condemned in our place. Help us to step into that light, step into that grace, to deepen our friendships with one another, to choose the option of no more hiding. Lord, deepen our love for each other. May grace erupt here. We thank you for your love. In the forgiving name of Jesus, we pray together. Amen.